1: The present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at Sourcesjournal.org.
2: Okay, hi everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Evita Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America. We're recording this morning on Thursday, July 16th, 2020, and I want to just mention that we're also recording as part of All Now, the Shalom Harbin Institute Summer Festival of Jewish Learning, Jewish Ideas for This Moment. We've had thousands of people joining with the Hartman Institute in learning uh, together, actually from around the world. Uh, it's been a, quite a rich experience, and I'm, I'm glad to have a live studio audience today for our podcast recording. I'm joined today by our first returning guest at the an identity crisis podcast. Uh, one of my one of my colleagues at the Shalom Hartman Institute, Dr. Ifka Press Schwartz, also associate principal at SAR High School. Probably most of the time, you introduce yourself with the reverse of those affiliations. But I guess when you're in Hartman land, the Hartman affiliation comes first. Uh, and we'll be joined a little bit later on as well by uh, by Anshel Pfeffer, a senior correspondent and columnist for Haaretz. And the reason for for this conversation with both uh, a scholar of uh of american history and as well as american judaism in america as well as a senior israeli correspondent is because i have this sense uh this feeling that utopianism is kind of back in the news in an interesting way and it's kind of feels like it's in the water right now uh as america reckons with with its moment of uh uh, another racial justice moment, a reckoning for, for Americans in American history, and a, and a wide conversation that has emerged in different sides of the political aisle about what America needs to do in order to reset its story. And, um, and so we'll explore later on, uh, it's in the water as well in conversations around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the future of the resolution of that conflict, and, and imaginations about what Israel might have been uh, and is not. So first of all, Rivka, I just, I'm just i curious whether you also feel that the whole conversation about utopia uh, is also in the water. Do you think that's a fair read? And, uh, and then we can kind of jump into a little bit of what's going on in America right now that's prompting a rethinking of the whole question of, of America as an ideal place or or the opposite thereof.
0: First of all, I'm honored to hear that I'm uh, the podcast's first returning guest. I'm not sure about the question of utopia, but certainly it does seem like there's a moment right now in the United States where many people feel like things that have been very deeply wrong about this country for a very long time, there is an opportunity to fix or address or get right. Many people have pointed this out, that if you read James Baldwin's essays from the 1960s or the Kerner Commission Report from the 1960s or reports that have been written even earlier, many of these complaints are not new at all. These issues, these problems are not new at all. They were not unknown, but there seems now perhaps to be a window opening to address them. So in that sense, the sense that we might actually be able to come out of this in some way building a more perfect union, I think that's felt very strongly right now.
2: So what first of all, I, I kind of want to try to figure out why. I I don't want to credit too much to the pandemic. I think there's a little bit of, um, I think it's a little bit overblown of the, the idea that people were cooped up indoors and therefore the opportunity to go out and protest was like, uh, in some ways, liberating. What, what do you think actually is happening in America? And it's not, and it can't just be the murder of George Floyd, because We've had similar episodes and incidents like this for uh, all of American history. So what is it that actually is, is creating this kind of interesting pivot? Because I agree with you. There's a moment here and there's a reckoning and there are more people engaged with or open to that reckoning with American history than there seem to have been for at least 50 years. So what do you think has actually changed uh, in, in this American moment that's making this possible?
0: So I think the interesting question, of course, to ask is what's changed for white Americans or for non-black Americans? Because as you've said, black Americans have tried to demand this kind of reckoning after the murder of Trayvon Martin and after the murder of Mike Brown and after and after, and uh, didn't necessarily get where they wanted to get with that. And if you've been to The Black Lives Matter protests that have been going on since Memorial Day weekend. One of the things you've seen is enormous numbers of people who are not black at those protests. Uh, Americans across all racial, color, ethnic, whatever it is, lines, who feel moved in this moment to come out. So what moves them? I'm not sure that my thoughts about this are worth particularly more than anyone else's. I'm not sure that I have any deep insights, but I will tell you a couple of things that seem to me um, to be in play here. I do think that the, the possibility and availability of cell phone videos changes things. Even the death of Michael Brown, who was killed, I said murdered before, but it's actually a little bit more complicated than that because the, the initial claims that Brown had his hands up and was saying hands up, don't shoot, when the officer shot him, the officer claimed that he was going for his gun, the autopsy, there were dueling autopsy reports. So there's a kind of ambiguity that lets somebody say, oh, Mike Brown was a teenager grabbing for the officer's gun, so of course he shot him. That's just a few years ago, but we didn't have video of, of the actual killing. We all watched somebody murder George Floyd while people said, you are murdering him. And he said, you are killing me. And the officer went on killing him. Many of us have knelt in the street for eight minutes and 46 seconds and seen just how long a time that is to keep doing what you're doing while someone's telling you he's killing somebody. So there is an element of this. The Supreme Court in one of its cases uses the term shocks the conscience. There's an element to this that is a shocking the conscience element. I also have to say that I don't think it's irrelevant that this is happening three and a half years into a Trump administration. One of the things that people often say about Trump and his administration, both as a as a criticism, but also as a praise, is that he says the quiet part's loud. There are no dog whistles. He says straight out what he needs. There are no subtle hints about race or coded appeals to racial whatever it is. The racial appeals are out there very frankly. And there might have been white Americans were willing to not know what those dog whistles meant or what the coded racial appeals meant who can't not know what some of the more frank statements when Trump says to police officers rough up suspects that means rough up suspects he did say that to a, a gathering of police officers uh, when when the Department of Justice which had been investigating racial discrimination in policing stands down from discriminating from investigating racial discrimination and policing so maybe it's a little bit more undeniable for white Americans what is that's going on here in a way that maybe demands something different of us.
2: I wonder whether there are other aspects of the, of the Trump administration that play into this as well. The very language that the Trump administration uses and the whole public policy approach, the Make America Great Again vision, suggests that there is some great story of America that we want to reacquaint ourselves with, the kind of reactionary nostalgia for some version of America that actually many of us think would be a much worse America, certainly was for Jews and certainly was for black people. but that what that puts into the water is a question of reinvestigating what America was supposed to be. And it actually, in, in that sense, is effectively backfires because it says to to many others, oh, you want to you want to relitigate the question of what America is supposed to be? Do you want to reinvestigate what are the core values and stories that are supposed to be part of the American story? Well, let me show you now why we're falling so deeply short of it. And and as a result what could what starts as a reactionary conservative movement ultimately can produce effectively the the equivalent outcome from the critics of the of that reactionary story and, and let me just add to that. I also wonder whether there's you know you you hear that there's a current of this in Jewish messianic thinking which says. Well, there's two ways to bring about the transformation of the world. One of them is to try to perfect the world. And the other is to try to basically break it completely. And until it's completely broken and completely shattered, you're not going to be able to put the pieces back there back together again. So I, I also wonder whether part of what's happened is the Trump administration is in some ways nihilistic about American bureaucracy has dismantled many aspects of American governance on purpose. It's, it's clearly it's part of the plan, uh, the whole critique of the deep state. I wonder whether some of what's happened is a kind of bipartisan embrace of a story of a certain type of brokenness, which which then prompts the possibility of a redesign uh, of the of the totality of this project. Do you think either of those are, are theories that hold water in this moment?
0: Well, I just, just think we have to be careful about who's doing what. There certainly is a bipartisan embrace of a kind of, you know, bring back um, benign, inoffensive competence and... Uh, And uh, there's no better avatar, of course, of benign, inoffensive competence than Joe Biden. And in that sense, the Democratic Party seems to have chosen against vast, sweeping change upheaval and in favor of a different kind of version of a past that was a great past that we can go back to. It's just a slightly altered great past, maybe situated a little bit later in time. But there was this great past when politicians worked together and negotiated deals. And then, of course, there's a much more radical critique, which is that wasn't great either when Joe Biden speaks nostalgically about when he was able to negotiate with segregationist white Southern senators to get legislation passed, there are plenty of Americans who say, mm, no, that's not actually what we had in mind. And so there is a more radical critique of the whole project that, which is actually the one that, you know, neither mainstream uh, Democrats nor Republicans nor Joe Biden subscribe to, but that certainly some of the radicals subscribe to, which is that this country is rotten from the beginning, rotten to the core, maybe irredeemable as a project that needs to be blown up. Um, For four Sundays in a row, my children and I went to a local neighborhood uh, protest march for black lives in Washington Heights in upper Manhattan, where we live. And it was really interesting to watch how that changed over the four weeks. For the first two weeks, it was run by a middle-aged local man who had just decided to organize it on his own and didn't know who would turn out. And the tone of it was deeply personal, deeply situated in the neighborhood, and also deeply optimistic including about the police and the possibility of police change. And then in the third week, a group of much younger activist teenagers came to the protest. I'm not sure from where. And the rhetoric completely changed. And they objected to the middle-aged organizer carrying an American flag, which he had done at the protest each of the preceding weeks. And you watch that play out in the rhetoric of their speaking. And I was actually standing there in real time saying to myself, I feel much more uncomfortable here than I did. Why is that? What does that mean? What is that worth? Maybe it doesn't matter, right? Maybe my discomfort doesn't matter in this moment. So there's a sense in which there are different nostalgias operating here in terms of what you want to go back to. And then there are the people who say, none of those nostalgias, we have to really completely reinvent this. And some of those, uh, you know, some of those people are making much more radical critiques of the whole enterprise from the beginning.
2: So I want to explore with you a little bit what it means for American Jews to be in relationship to this reckoning, uh, especially white and white-passing American Jews who have uh, told a certain story about America, one that has been uh, optimistic in its nature, uh, almost uh, utopian uh, in terms of the experience that American Jews ascribe to at least American values. Let me play out a a hypothesis with you and you can tell me what you think. So there's a whole strain of... um, of Black literary thought called Afro-pessimism. And Afro-pessimism argues that as Blackness is constructed as an identity, as the antithesis to whiteness, it is basically irredeemable. And that the only way to actually bring about some version of racial justice is by tearing apart the very infrastructure that constructs Blackness to begin with. And certain Afro-pessimistic thinkers will say that means exodus from America. But most of them will say the whole project is kind of laced in with uh, racial injustice and the construction of blackness that's basically irredeemable. I feel like that some of that narrative has emerged as being um, stronger that says, don't tell me that America is just has been struggling for something and failing, that the whole construct of this project needs to be uh, needs to be readdressed. The problem I think is unique for American Jews in this story is that I think American Jews have not been Afro pessimistic about the American project. If anything, I think American Jews have been uh, historically, throughout the 20th century, m- in many ways, the greatest idealists about the American promise, going back to Lazarus and Brandeis and, and onwards of this story that America, as Brandeis says, makes real the brotherhood of man. Never have the Jews found a country so in line with our values as the American story. And what, uh, what the tension that I think it, it feels it creates for, I would say for me, for many Jews and Jewish communities that I know is, do I have to let go of that vision or promise of America to actually make sense of what America actually is? And doesn't that actually create for American Jews a deep cognitive dissonance in um, in this story that has actually been one of profound at-homeness for American Jews? There's a significant emerging generation gap. Between the American Jews over the generations who believe that they were of the greatest generation, that that fueled, that's like how we, we kind of made it. We're part of that progressive story. Oh, of course there's always been racial injustice, but basically the, our country is committed to justice and democracy. So what happens to the American Jewish psyche if, um, if this story turns out to not have been the optimistic, progressive version of politics and history that, that I think for, was critical for American Jews in our, in our self understanding?
0: Yeah, I think the first step of that sometimes is that American Jews don't even know, maybe don't choose to know, or don't allow themselves to know, or maybe just don't even know that someone else's American story is so wildly different than their own. I've been quoting, I I don't know if this is original to David Foster Wallace, but in a commencement address he gave in 2005, um, he tells the following story. Two young fish are swimming through the ocean, they meet an older fish, and the older fish passing them says, boys, how's the water? And the two younger fish keep on swimming, and one of them turns to the other one and says... Water? What the hell is water? Um, So being able to see our own water is so important here. And it is absolutely true. Our experience, my own familial experience as Eastern European Ashkenazi Jews coming here is one of opportunity and acceptance and making it and all those other things and achieving success and eventually becoming welcome and, and, and being at home. And the first thing I have to know is that that's not the story, that's my story, and someone else has a different story. And that goes back to what you were talking about, but when we start to raise the question of going back to some mythic past and talking about our history, and we start talking about our history, I'm not quite sure exactly why, since this year is the 99th anniversary, not the 100th anniversary, but all of a sudden this year there's been an explosion of talk about the Tulsa race riot in Oklahoma in 1921, and which was then only heightened when Trump decided to take his first uh, you know, post-COVID reopening rally to Tulsa but an enormous amount of discussion and literal excavation of mass grave, enormous amount of discussion and literal excavation of a story in American history that many people were not familiar with and that Jewish Americans have to somehow say our water is not everyone's water. And we have to know that, which then gets to your second question of, okay, I know that. Can I still hold on to some sort of optimistic story about America, some kind of believing in those American values, or am I really pushed by that knowledge to sign on for that much more pessimistic view. I would say separate from my identity as a Jewish person, except I'm not sure that anything really operates separate from anything else, but in my identity as an American history teacher, as a student of and a teacher of American history, I've thought about this for a very, very long time. I, I, I really, I know a lot about all the bad stuff, I do. I teach a lot about all the bad stuff. I personally retain that sense of optimism. I would call myself an American patriot, even though that's a, you know, a, a loaded way to refer to oneself, um, perhaps. And I think I got some insight into that. I'm part of, a, part of an undertaking called Civic Spirit, which is an organization that seeks to bring civics education into religious schools. It started a couple of years ago with six Jewish day schools and six Catholic schools. And being part of that has really been a remarkable experience to sit and work over the summers with educators from different schools, backgrounds very different than ours are. So I spent a couple of summers working with this cohort of uh, Catholic school educators, and one of them was a man named Petrus Fortune. Petrus is Haitian-American, so he himself is both black and an immigrant, and he teaches students in a Catholic school, many of whom are black and Hispanic, many of whom are of lower socioeconomic status, many of whom are first generation. And we we got to this conversation of how do you teach "All men are created equal, written by the slave owner Thomas Jefferson. And we, the white teachers, are hand-wringing, and we're conflicted, and we don't know how to say this, and Petrus Fortune has no problem. He said what are you talking about? I say to my students he put those words out there and it doesn't matter if he didn't mean them for you. You can take them. You pick them up, you grab them, you run with them, you make them yours even if he didn't intend them for you. Now obviously there are the other strains in in African American thought, there are the other strains in more radical leftist thought that that don't subscribe to that that think the whole project is, you know, rotten root and branch. Um but I have always Retain some sense that I could hold on to an awareness of the things that were really deeply fundamentally wrong and still believe that there was something put out here that we can run with and that other people can run with.
2: Did July 4th feel different for you this year?
0: Did July 4th feel different for me this year? It did indeed, and uh, not in ways that were all bad. I have found that when I am acting on my citizenship, not just sitting at home You know, being frustrated. Those are the times that I feel most positive and most optimistic. July 4th came after a period of weeks in which, again, at times I and at times I and my children um, had been going to a number of protests. And there was a sense of a mobilization of a population, of a community, of a nation around issues that we really care about. I mean, it also felt different because I'd been listening to what sounded like artillery explosions in my neighborhood every night for a week before. I'm not quite sure what that was about. But I took my kids out to watch the fire. You didn't have to go anyplace to watch the fireworks. The fireworks were exploding all around us. I took my kids out on Shabbos afternoon to uh, watch the fireworks that were being, you know, blown up down the block. I felt different, obviously, because there's a lot to be worried about and upset about. We don't have to recapitulate all that. But different also because here's a chance to actually start to do that work.
2: Uh, I'm also curious, Rivka, and then I want to, I want to bring, uh, into this conversation, uh, as well to talk a little bit about this, uh, the story as it relates to how American Jews see Israel. I'm also curious whether, uh, whether you've seen a change in teaching high school students for, for quite some time in terms of their, uh, what you saw maybe 10 years ago among your high school students and what you see today and what we can anticipate. You know, anyone who grows up in a story is going to inherit aspects of the story and then at a various, at a a developmental moment is going to resist. Pieces of that story, and is also privy to a version of that story that's unique to their own generation. So it's, there's a reason why my grandparents, you know, my grandparents, my grandfather fought in World War II um, for the as an American GI. There's a re- reason why his story of America made sense to him at his particular time, and why my kids' version of that story is different. But what are we going to see in terms of a generational change of American Jewish kids in terms of their embrace of? or rejection of the story of America as, um, as, it's, as, as it may have been true for their parents or grandparents.
0: My students once were much more naive about this complicated, painful, and ugly story of America. And when I would show it to them, they had a hard time believing that what I was showing them was true. Alexander Stevens was the vice president of the Confederacy. He gave a speech called The Cornerstone Speech, which says that the cornerstone of our society is the idea that Black people are inferior to white people and are meant to be slaves. You can go look it up. you can go read the speech. I once gave it to my students on a test as an unseen text. They had never read it before. I gave them an excerpt of the cornerstone speech to read, and I asked them to interpret or analyze it. A student of mine didn 't believe that was an actual historical text. I had to have made it up, even though they had learned about the Civil War and they had learned about the Confederacy and they had learned about slavery, but somehow such a bold statement of racist sentiment seemed impossible for them to believe in a way that I think students now find that very possible to believe they have a much they, they have a much more nuanced or complicated or painful understanding of American history uh, in a way that they're not shocked when I show them some things. I mean, they still may sometimes be shocked, but I think they're less shocked when I show them some things than students were 10 years ago, where they really had a hard time um, believing the realities of this country, the historical realities of this country. Uh, I, I get much less no, no, the Confederacy was fought about, states' rights kind of thing. There's much more of a sense that that was a particular historical narrative constructed in a time, deployed for a reason, doesn't stand up to historical scrutiny. And I think our students have much more of, a, of an awareness and exposure to that. The question about the American Jewish narratives, I think, is very complicated. Um, and there is a whole way in which the Israel story layers into this. There certainly is a sense that aligning oneself politically with the lefter side of the spectrum carries implications for how one thinks about Israel and one's Zionism, and that I think makes some, maybe many, of my students less comfortable both with certain ways of thinking and being, and also in certain spaces, with certain groups, with certain groups of of thinkers and, and actors, than they otherwise might be, uh, because they see them as being, at best, unsympathetic and maybe very actively hostile to the way my students experience their own Zionism and their own love of Israel.
2: We'll talk to Anshul Pfeffer in a moment, um, and try to unpack this a little bit more about the correlations between the sense of, uh, despair and disappointment in the American project and the therefore need for a totally different kind of radical politics to unmake or remake what that project was meant to be. And a similar conversation that, uh, that's taking place by American Jews around, around the state of Israel. And, and there, one of the biggest gaps that emerges is whether American Jews desire to see the state of israel be a totally different project is at all consistent with what either israelis or palestinians want uh with respect to that story and that's why i mean that's kind of why I, we started where we started in terms of the, the work of storytelling because there are times at which storytelling prompts and precipitates a certain politics And there's sometimes the storytelling, I think it has nothing to do with whether or not that version of the world is actually going to become something or whether there's actually a political plan for the world. But it's because we we live in the world through our stories uh, and our narratives actually wind up being really essential uh, features of our identity also.
1: Our doors are open and we're ready for the summer. That means you can sign up for conversations, lectures and electives at the Hartman Institute's Month of Learning. All Together Now, Jewish Ideas for This Moment. You can register for the program and sign up for events at bit.ly slash Hartman Summer. For decades, Jewish leaders from across North America have traveled to Mahon Hartman in Israel to learn alongside inspiring faculty and meet old and new friends in the warmth of the Jerusalem summer. This year we won't be able to gather in Jerusalem, but we have opened the doors of our Beit Midrash and have invited everyone inside, free of charge. All Together Now is a month-long celebration of ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. Join hundreds of Jewish leaders between June 29th and July 23rd, as over 60 of our scholars from Israel and North America address the moral and theological questions facing us at this moment of crisis and opportunity. Are you registered? Have you signed up for your sessions yet? Just go to bit.ly slash Hartman Summer and register for free. But hurry, because some sessions have limited space.
2: So let me invite Anshul Pfeffer in, into our conversation as well. Anshul is a, a senior correspondent and uh, a and, uh, and journalist with Haaretz in Israel. Thanks for being with us, and thanks for connecting from Israel. Uh, Anshul, um, uh, thanks for being on the podcast. You, uh, you wrote, uh, as well as I did, a trenchant response to a very provocative essay that was written this past week by, by Peter Beinart, an American journalist. Who wrote about uh, his own con- political conversion from being a, a two-state solution advocate as a liberal Zionist to a one-state solution advocate. And you wrote in your piece, and, and it prompted this conversation, which I think you heard a little bit of between uh, Rivka and myself, around uh, you use the language that uh, Peter Beinart's Israel sounds great, it sounds utopian, uh, but it has no uh, no real plausibility. So for let's talk a little bit about that utopianism. So first of all, is that true like is there a is there is this vision that that was being advanced about what Israel could have or should have been is it actually a, a version of Israel that you would want to live in and then I, I'd love for you to unpack for our listeners a little bit the problematics of what it means to advance a vision for Israel when it actually has no electoral plausibility
3: well you know Peter by, in his piece wrote about a and it was very evocative and uh, details there in his piece about what a Israel-Palestine uh, hyphen Palestine could look like, a binational state in which uh, there's full equality between all all citizens, Jews, Muslims, Israelis, Palestinians. And as I wrote in my piece uh, last weekend in Harrod I'd like to live in that kind of state. I think that if such a state could uh, preserve the raison d'etre of Israel as A state where Jews are safe and a state where Jews can come from around the world if they're suffering persecution. And I'm I'm fine even with revising some of the details of the law of return. Jews arriving in Israel do not necessarily need to have full citizenship immediately as they have today. We, We can talk about changing the law of return as long as the principle that Israel is a haven, is a safe place for Jews who are being persecuted anywhere in the world to to come to and and be safe in, then then I'm I'm willing to accept this as a binational state, if if it can indeed remain safe and secure for all its citizens. And and, and this certainly solves the the, the issue that we both have a a massive problem with, the issue that there are currently millions of Palestinians without rights, which is Israel is controlling their fate. Yes, I would like to live in Peter Beinart's Israel-Palestine if there was a way in which this could come into being. But sadly, right now, there isn't such a way, and therefore it's an utopia. And uh, my main objection to Beinart's essay wasn't the. By national state, he was proposing because, like I said, I, I'd be willing to live in such a state. But it was he was having a conversation in a very, very what I think is a very small uh, section, both of American jury, but also with but also with the Palestinians. He made a big issue, and he's been doing so ever since uh, on Twitter, ever since his, his piece came out about how important it is to listen to the Palestinians and to engage with the Palestinians. I totally agree. All the Palestinians uh, is engaging with in his piece. And all the Palestinians, save for one, that he mentioned afterwards on social media as having read them and having engaged with them, are all American academics who happen to be of Palestinian origin. Now, I'm not saying that, that they shouldn't be engaged with, but this is an internal conversation happening within American academia and perhaps part of American media as well. It's not a conversation with Israelis and Palestinians. So this utopian idea of, of the Israel-Palestine is a great idea, but there is not, there is not even one sentence in Binat's essay on how he thinks Israelis and Palestinians who are actually living in Israel-Palestine should, be, should engage with this idea, because currently, on both sides, there are very, very clear, overwhelming majorities against this idea.
2: That's a really interesting observation about it being predominantly Palestinian American academics, and it suggests that there's something, maybe there's something about distance. American Jews and Israeli Jews, one of the characteristic differences between us is around optimism and pessimism, or maybe put differently, optimism and realism. In this context, maybe it's utopianism and realism. I, I wonder whether that that remains one of the gaps between American Jews and Israelis is the desire to see. The the, the difficulty of seeing Israel as what it is, and the desire to see in Israel something that not only is it not, but maybe it can't be. I certainly see that, you know, you see that in a lot of American Jewish Zionist discourse, which is oftentimes, since it's not in the same language or idiom that Israelis actually live. Sometimes feels like it's talking about something that is totally different than the actual place. Do you I wonder whether you see that or or you experience it. And I don't want to expand beyond just beyond just Jews because I do think there are ways in which the whole international community sees the Israeli Palestinian conflict as playing out a bigger story than is actually lived by Israelis and Palestinians. Go ahead.
3: I think it's very much connected to to your previous conversation with Rivka that this is a moment in w- in which the American Jewish psyche is is changing and is reassessing its place within American culture, within American politics, and with, within American history, and being an important community, American Jewry needs to to reassess its position at this moment of racial and political turmoil in the United States. And I think that for 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 a certain type of uh, of, of of Jews, both on the on the left and on the right, one of the things that tends to um, to define where they stand. It's not where they stand on a, necessarily on American politics and American values. It's where they stand on a country which is 6,000 miles away. And Bayard himself begins his essay by saying there are two types of Jews. One is very much in favor, one is very much against Israel. And I think it was on Twitter, Ron Campey asked, excuse me, but there are so many other things which define Jews and which define American Jews. And And I think, the, and I think what... There is a huge conversation. You were just having it right now with Rifkin just before about the place of American Jews within within American discourse. And what Bayonard is, I I think, doing in his essay, he's using Israel as a a way to define American Jews vis-a-vis other minority groups and vis-a-vis the zeitgeist today in the United States. This is not about Israel. This is, I hate to use the word, but this is sort of a virtue signal towards counterparts within America, with American academia, with American media say, this is where we stand as a certain section of American Jews. We're no longer in favor of the two-state solution. We're now in favor of a bi-national state. This is not a, really about what is, what is in the future for Israel and Palestine. This is about where they stand as American Jews within America.
2: So I have felt this way a long, for a long time in the American Jewish community, and I teach about it quite a bit. Which is that oftentimes when American Jews talk about Israel, they're not really talking about Israel; they're talking about ourselves. We're talking about our fears. We're talking about our identity. Our the version of ourselves that that is most represented in the world, and therefore we want it to be a certain way. And I'm I'm just I, this is something of a personal question, but you said yeah, I would love to live in that Israel, uh, but we, but we don't have it, and I, I guess I'm wondering for you. How do you manage that disappointment? Uh, Because that's ultimately at the core of all of this is Israel was was might have been something and it's not that. And now I have to adjust to that reality, even though sometimes it embarrasses me. I think many liberal American Jews uh, feel embarrassed and ashamed about Israel's political culture, about its choices, whether or not I even if I identify with why Israel sometimes has to do the things that it does. Sometimes it doesn't have to do those things and decides to do them anyway. So, how do you, as a how do you as an Israeli who who describes that there's a version of Israel that you kind of wish you had that you don't have? How do you manage that disappointment?
3: Part of the problem is that we're talking about Israel and we're talking about Zionism. Now, Zionism, I think, is is a plan. It was a plan to to establish a Jewish state. Now, Zionism throughout the sixty depends uh, where you know when you when you put the, the date of birth of political Zionism, it was 1897, or perhaps early with Zion, but for 50 or 60 or 70 years, until the establishment of Israel Zionism went through a number of evolutions of what the Jewish state would look like, what the political framework in which it would be founded would be. And then in 1948, lo and behold, there was a state. And for the last 72 years, our question is what kind of a state we can make We can make out of it. It's no longer a question about what is Zionism, and is Zionism justified, and do we believe in liberal Zionism or revisionist of Zionism or binational British Shalom Zionism? These are all, I think, rather empty, sterile arguments when you have an actual state that you need to manage and you need to run and you need to try and plan for its future to make it a better place. Now, the facts are that 90-odd percent of Israelis... Do not come from countries where democracy was the norm. Sadly, American Jews stayed in America. My family were British, moved to Israel, but most British Jews stayed in Britain. And the same is true of almost every democratic country where there is a large Jewish community. Jews came from Eastern Europe, they came as Holocaust survivors, they came as refugees from North Africa and other Arab countries. Jews did not come. To Israel with a with a democratic experience, and they didn't, uh, and and Israel wasn't wasn't founded in a in a laboratory with perfect conditions for for, for a democratic nation, and certainly what's happened since that it, in all the different episodes of the Israel past and conflict hasn't exactly lended to the creation of a democratic state. Now. I, you know, I work for Haaretz. We're a liberal left-wing newspaper, hypercritical of, you know, Golda Meir once said the last government that, that Haaretz supported was the British Mandate, and that wasn't true. We were critical of them as well. We're a critical newspaper. I believe in Haaretz's mission. Haaretz's mission is the Declaration of Independence of Israel, it's all those lofty ideals which were set out by David ben Gurion on that Friday afternoon when he founded the state. Now, those are the ideals, and we 're still far from we 're still very far from from reaching them but it 's a work in progress and i don 't think that anybody uh, could have expected in one thousand nine hundred and forty eight that Israel would never have a military coup and would would continue holding uh democratic and transparent elections now that doesn 't mean that i 'm disregarding for one moment the fact that Israel does a lot of bad things, a lot of what you call embarrassing things, but I assume as an american you 're pretty embarrassed by your own country quite often, certainly in the last three and a half years. And, uh, you know, we're embarrassed by lots of things. We're embarrassed by, the, by a racist stupid uncle at a Shabbat meal who says things that we, you know, we, that we vehemently uh, are against, but that's, you know, that's part of being in a family. And we're, and we're embarrassed by a teacher at, a, at, at, at the school that we, that we teach in or, or kids study in. We're embarrassed, we're embarrassed by, by a guy being boorish in, in our school, that, we don't live in in these perfect environments where everyone says the right thing, and we can throw someone out just because it, just because he embarrasses us. The the idea that we'll have the Israel of our dreams is one that I want to carry on clinging to. I don't, and for that, and for that purpose, it I'm not, I don't care if the Israel of the future is a is a binational hyphenated Israel-Palestine or two-state solution or confederacy. I'm interested in the word solution. I want to solve the problems. And I'm not looking for the ideal solution. I'm looking for a solution that works. And that's the kind of thing that we're writing about. And that's the reason we're criticizing every day the things that are not helping us reach that. But to simply say, this is a wonderful solution. This ticks all our boxes. This is moral and just and equal. And therefore... We're going to now move away from the two-state solution and cling on to this. It's something you can say if you have no responsibility whatsoever, also for delivering a solution. Now, I'm not saying it that diaspora Jews are not allowed to say. I think they are. I'm half a diaspora Jew, and I think that this, this conversation about Israel's future is a conversation which has to involve the diaspora. My problem with the way that Beinart put his solution isn't the, fa- isn't the fact that he's not an Israeli and therefore he has no right. He does have a right, but I think that he needs to. That everyone who, who, who's weighing in also has to say, "Okay, this is a great idea for solution. Here is how I think Israelis and Palestinians should be working toward achieving it."
2: Yeah. So, I, and in that respect, I uh, I wrote something similar to to what you wrote in Haaretz in my response uh, in Tablet to Beinart, which is to simply dismiss the fact that even the very template uh, within Israeli electoral politics that Beinart wants to use, namely I'm an ODA and the Joint List. The fact that they are still adamantly pro two state solution means you have nothing, You have no peg on which to actually claim that there's any political viability to a different version of what Israel is. So, so it may be a likable vision, uh, but it's but it's not just not a real vision. It doesn't actually respect the. the the very electorate that would be responsible for implementation and also most affected by the outcome. I guess there is I do have one kind of intellectual history question for you, which is, you know, when we were speaking earlier, talking about America, there's a lot of power for Americans in in reengaging the literature of the founding of this country. It's not a coincidence that in the middle of this moment, one of the most popular cultural phenomenons in America is the releasing of Hamilton on Disney+. Plus. That's partly because they're smart and they know that people are stuck at home and that they they finished Netflix. So we got to find new sources of entertainment. And since Hamilton lost its revenue stream at the theater, we might as well put it into, the, into into Disney+. But there's something else about it, which is like, there's something exciting about going back to the early moments of figuring out what this country was about. And then asking how are we holding how are we holding ourselves accountable to it? It's also very Jewish. We do this all the time. Like what's the what is the what does Torah want of us? And then use that as a means of holding ourselves accountable in in this moment. So that's I think the generous spirit by which it's really interesting to go back and read people like Martin Buber, who who had a different vision for the state of Israel, or even and here I want I to I'll push a little bit even Herzl. When Herzl you you describe Herzl not as a utopian but as a realist, but in the first draft of The Jewish State by Herzl, he actually comes to a different, his different conclusion at the end of The Jewish State, where it's actually quite utopian, where he really believes that the state of Israel, a Jewish state will not just solve the political problem of the Jewish people, but will actually make the Jewish people at home within the family of nations. So that may be naive, and it may be, it may be the stuff of the past, but but isn't it useful in some deep way to to go back and ask, what might have been or what should have been, and, and to not simply set that aside and say that's not real politics, but to read to read it as kind of like the the stuff that forms the covenant of what it is that we think we're building towards because if you never do that then and you stay always in the realm of the realism, then what are you dreaming for uh, what are you building towards
3: i mean as, as a journalist i'm, I'm a very Sympathetic to re- rereading Herzl, who, who was, a, was one, of the, you know, one of the great Jewish journalists of his day, and, uh, and totally, uh, I'm totally in favour of reengaging with Herzl's writings. That you know, you read Herzl and you see that he saw the Israeli education system as being sort of like British public schools. He even says that that even the working class, the younger men and women will play cricket, which if anybody knows, Israel knows it's not exactly a sport that we play here. One of the issues is that America is a much more mature country. You're talking about a country which is in existence more than three times the length of time that Israel has been existing. And, and you know, these people who, you know, when you talk, who you're talking about, the founding fathers of the United States, they drafted a constitution which, you know, which has evolved and has been amended, but it's still... It's still around and it's still a useful document. Israel hasn't even got around to writing its constitution yet. You know, you know, I mentioned before the Declaration of Independence that you know that is not even there's even an argument of how much that actually how much Israel is committed to that today. And as we know, some of the clauses of uh, of the Declaration of Independence have yet to be fulfilled. You know, it's a country without defined borders, it's a country with without a social charter, without a clear bill of rights. There's so many things still lacking from Israel, partly because of is that Israel was made during war and then it was all the waves of immigration and we still have this un- unresolved uh, conflict with the Palestinians. So part of that, retrospect, you know, that kind of retrospection, which I think is, would be a good thing, is very difficult to do in a country like Israel, which is still very much, I wouldn't say an embryonic state, but it's, not, but, but it's still growing up.
2: So let me ask one last question, which is, I know you're a, bit, you're in the, you're a journalist, which means you're born in, in the business of description than prescription. Um, I get that. But it was hard not to tell in the passion with which you wrote this response uh, to, a, to a liberal American that there's something else you would want out of liberal Americans. So what what is that? What would you want out of liberal American Jews in their engagement with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, with their engagement from Israel? And, and you can be prescriptive, and we won't hold
3: you to it. Well, I think there are a lot of things that, that I'd like here uh, to see because there's this sense that, 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 that a lot of the engagement is based around these very transitory ideas, fa- uh, trends, and people. So, you know, just a few days ago, everyone was all, oh, the annexation, what will the annexation do? It will fundamentally change things, it will fundamentally change the relationship between Israel and death, but no. First of all, it didn't happen as, as various pundits and myself included have been writing for a few weeks and months before that. This was always going to be some kind of gimmick for Netanyahu. It was never going to actually happen. But the idea that that there's going to be some one event or one personality coming along and changing fundamentally everything, I think, is something that American, you know, liberal American Jews can you know take a step back and think these. You know, a lot of these trends, a lot of these. That these developments take time. There's, there's not one person who's going to come along and change it. I remember when American Jews, liberal American Jews, were waiting for Tzipi Livni. Had had this whole idea that would be prime minister. So she's some sensible liberal woman who will change everything. And then they fell in love with someone like Staff Shafir and uh, various other personalities. And, and, and I'm sure both of us remember the day when they thought that Benjamin Netanyahu was this actually a liberal who or sort of a liberal who would would very much change the way Israel it works, and it would make it more of an American-style state. Netanyahu is, is, is in many ways, an American-style politician, but certainly not something that liberals want. And I think you know, I've written before. I think the American Jews should should, should rethink their whole the whole way they engage with Israeli politics because they have a lot of responsibility for that ph- phenomenon called Benjamin Netanyahu. So. You know that's also something that they should they should take into account but i think that it's really much more a question of how american jews define themselves and the american jews too many american jews tend to define themselves through israel tend to sort of subcontract their identity to israel and it's not my business to lecture to american jews but if you know if you're going to try and see your own values through what's happening in israel then you'll always be disappointed. I mean, you have in the background, I can see just behind you the lovely campus of the Hartman Center in Jerusalem, which is around the corner from, from where I live. But it, it's a different reality and you can't always see yourselves through that. There has to be a way in which American Jews, Festival have to have a clear idea for what they stand themselves living as they do in America. And then I think with those values, and I think American Jews have incredible, have incredible culture and values and a lot to give to Israel, a lot to give to the whole Jewish world diaspora. It's the, it's the most important Jewish community, you could argue is as it as, as important, it certainly the most important diaspora community in, the history, in Jewish history. And it has to have a better idea of what it stands for itself before it engages meaningfully with Israel. And I think instead of doing that, too many American Jews and partly Part of the problem with this with, with essay is that it tries to sort of frame American Jewish values through Israel. That, I think that is the core, the core problem here. What do American Jews stand for, not just in regard to Israel, but in regard to themselves, in regards to America, in regard to their own Jewishness? And I think when American Jews have a better idea of that, they'll be able to engage in a much more constructive way with Israel as well.
2: Well, it's a it's a great way for us to end it. I really appreciate the push. I mean, it, what it what it summarizes both in our conversation earlier with uh, Rifka Press Schwartz and and now and now with you, Anshul, is um, I really like the distinction between what's the story that you're telling or that you want or need to tell about yourselves or about your commitments in the world, and what is the actual nature of those commitments. I, I appreciate especially the charge to American Jews to uh, to lean in. Lean into what our project is fundamentally about. I believe in a deep sense, and I am really trying to write this book, that part of the reason why Israel consumes um, so much of our uh, energy and attention is precisely because the American Jews, have been, we have an underdeveloped sense of what it means to be American. We have not written nearly as much theoretical literature as American Jews about the American Jewish project as we have about Zionism. And, uh, and that's a kind of outsourcing of an identity conversation that I think is uh that I think is impoverishing us. Anyway, thank you. Um, thank you for listening to, to this week's show and a special thanks to my guest, Angel Pfeffer, uh, live from, uh, Jerusalem, is it? I think it's Jerusalem and, uh, as well as, uh, Dr. Rivka press schwartz Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute in North America. It's produced and edited this week by David C. Kalman. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman with music provided by so-called in addition to the podcasts, this podcast was streamed live this week as part of our All Together Now Summer Learning series. You can find more about this at shellamhartman.org. There are dozens more classes taking place uh, throughout next week. To learn more about the Shellam Hartman Institute, visit us online at shellamhartman.org. We really love to know what you think about the show. You can write to us at identitycrisis.shellamhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week. Thanks again, and thanks for listening.